Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices. But they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Hello everyone and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and Merry Christmas. We hope you're having a great Christmas Day. Coming up on our program in a bit, we're going to talk with Bray Atkinson with the American Farm Bureau Federation about dealing with stress on the farm. It is a stressful time uh, in agriculture. And we're also going to be hearing from author Ace Collins. He has stories behind some of our favorite Christmas songs. Hope you'll stay tuned for that. Really enjoy talking with author Ace Collins. But first, the Christmas tree, a big part of the Christmas observance. I talked recently with Tim O'Connor, Executive Director of the National Christmas Tree Association. Well, good morning, Mike, and yes, we will. There will be a real Christmas tree for everybody who wants one in 2019, and we're excited about that. Give us an overview of the industry and... Uh, production and growth and uh, uh, where the industry stands right now? Well, the industry is not that different from other segments of agriculture. You know, there are challenges to growing Christmas tree. The weather, certainly being one, we've had areas of the country that have been dry. Uh, that can be a little problematic those that are putting new seedlings in the ground, getting them off to a good start in a dry year is a real handful. Uh, but overall, uh, the crop is excellent. Uh, the growers are excited every year, you know, very different than some other crops. Uh, you, know, you work all year and you have about a three-week window to make your living. I always am reminded uh, when you talk to someone in the tree business, it's it's so much different than if you're growing corn or soybeans. You have a bad year, you 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 replant and hope for better next year and uh, have another harvest next year. But in in the tree industry, uh, if you have uh, insect problems or you know some other disaster. It takes a long time to recover. You're not just going to re-harvest that crop again the next year. It's going to take a while. It is a long lead business. The the typical timeline to grow a seedling up to harvestable size is 7 to 10 years. 
some variation to that uh, by tree varieties and location, but in general it's that long before a grower sees you know, a harvestable crop, there's annual maintenance costs, there's certainly the challenges of growing a crop outdoors that all of agriculture is familiar with. There are bugs, there are diseases, there are the wet years, there are the dry years, you know, all the things that happen. And growers have to deal with them. And so it's one of those challenges where you try to read the market that far out. Uh, should I plant more? Should I plant less? Uh, should I change the varieties that I'm planting? Uh, all of those things are, are different in the Christmas tree industry than they are with annual crops. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how has the industry changed over the years? Well, I think the uh, the changes are on, on multiple levels. Uh, the industry has consolidated like all of agriculture has, and it's kind of gone to the two ends of the spectrum. There are very large growers that uh, are in the wholesale business where they cut and load trees on semis and deliver them to big customers like Home Depot, Lowe's, and Walmart. Uh, and there are growers on the other end of the spectrum who bring consumers to their farm. And they open their farm for business and have hundreds, maybe even thousands of people come to their farm over the period of a few weeks and pick out a tree and cut it and bring it home. And those two sectors of the industry are highly specialized. And, uh, you know, both of them have been um, with their own challenges, but in general, the ones that are successful are doing very well. We're talking with Tim O'Connor, Executive Director of the National Christmas Tree Association. Tim, of course, a big challenge for the Christmas tree industry is uh, artificial trees. Uh, what are what are the the selling points for real trees that the industry likes to use to uh, get people to buy a real tree? Well, we think the real tree has so many things to appeal to consumers, particularly young families. We'll start with like the most obvious one that we think is critically important is the experience of getting the tree as a family activity. I always like to picture it as you think about two videos running side by side and one is the family getting in their car and driving somewhere and going through the activity of looking at trees and debating about trees and finding the tree that they finally agree on and having that experience. And often there's a little story 
What's the most popular tree right now, and how has that changed over the years? Well, in general, the tree varieties that are grown are specific to regions of the country based on their agronomic performance in that growing condition. So there's not one variety prevalent coast to coast. You would find varieties that are more prevalent in the east, different varieties that are more prevalent in the west, because that's where they grow the best, and that's how they've been bred to adapt to those growing conditions. But as a general answer, over time, these shorter-needled fir trees have become more popular and replaced 
so that's not to say there aren't longer needle pine trees in the market. They're not. They're beautiful trees. There are people who love them and prefer them. But in general, the majority of the volume has gone to the shorter needle fir trees. Very good, Tim. Good to talk with you again. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. Take care. That's Tim O'Connor, Executive Director of the National Christmas Tree Association. Stay with us. More to come here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over the second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a credenced soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over the second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a credenz soybean grower. When you pick credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to Adams on Agriculture. We know the holiday time of year can bring about uh, uh, stress, uh, put stress on people, and we know that agriculture has stress that goes with it year-round, and especially in a year like 2019 with the weather challenges and the trade wars and a lot of issues that have just made this a very difficult year. So as farmers are dealing with that stress and farm families are dealing with that stress, uh, the American Farm Bureau Federation is trying to help farmers with this. Ray Atkinson with the American Farm Bureau Federation joins us now. Ray, thank you for being with us. Uh, how do you hope to be able to... to lend a helping hand to those dealing with these stressful times. Well, Mike, uh, thank you for having us on, having me on. Um, as, you, as you correctly pointed out, I mean, it, this year is just a perfect storm of all the issues that are hitting farmers and ranchers, and it's obviously very, very stressful. But we've been for some time looking at ways that we could find to uh, to help people manage and understand and manage the, um, the stress that they're under. So this week we announced 
um, a, a, a partnership that we're working with Farm Credit and National Farmers Union on uh, offering a, a training program that will train individuals that interact with farmers and ranchers to, to do just that, to understand the sources of stress and to help people find resources to manage them. This is a curriculum that's developed by Michigan State University Extension for Farm Service Agency, and it's been very successful. Farmers are often reluctant to reach out and seek help or to, to publicly acknowledge in any way that they're dealing with, with stress. Uh, so it, it really puts more uh, emphasis on those around them to watch for signs that indicate maybe some trouble and uh, reach out to them. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, one of the things, Mike, that we looked at when we did our research uh, back in April, um, we all... We're all aware of, of farmers kind of being uh, private and not wanting to talk about things. And we did the research to ask farmers and to ask folks what they what they thought. And um, there's a couple things that really jumped out that um, farmers were two times more likely than rural adults in general to not be comfortable talking to a friend or family member about solutions for mental health condition, and they're also less likely than rural adults as a whole to be confident that to be able to spot warning signs of a mental health condition. And so you're absolutely right. It's it's so important, um, especially, uh, and I don't think it's just limited to farmers that. When uh, folks are suffering from stress, I mean, I want to reach out and tell people about it so that it's up to us to, to be able to identify that and to find ways to help. Because the tendency is, and human nature is, especially, I think, uh, with farmers, to just kind of put your head down and just work your way through it, and you'll be able to, you'll be able to get through it somehow uh, without getting any help, and that may not be the case. Yeah, that's definitely not the case, and there's certainly um, nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, we know stigma is such a big part of this, and, and uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of for asking for help, and, and it's very, very important. I mean, you think about... We like to use the analogy that if your tractor is, is having uh, you know issues and you, and you need to perform maintenance on your on your farm equipment, you're certainly going to do that. But you're the most important piece of equipment on your farm, and if you you know you have to be able to uh, perform well and, and to be in good shape yourself, and so it's, it's really really important that people understand that you, know, you take care of yourself first. 
We're talking with Bray Atkinson with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Bray, there's always stress that goes with farming. This year just seems to have had more than its share. And while some farmers may have gone through these tough times before, others, this may be the first time they've gone through a year like this. That's absolutely right, and, you know, I'm not sure which is, which is worse, honestly. Somebody's been through it year after year after year, and maybe even experienced it during the 80s, or somebody who's experiencing for the first time. And certainly, um, whichever side you're on there, uh, it, it's bad, and, and, uh, and it's stressful, and, um, you know, it, it's just so important that we look to folks and, and help, you know, understand where they're, where they're struggling and be able to help. And I think you, you, you correctly, you know, said that, you know, how important that is because I think, um, again, you know, we had, um, and when we had worked on the opioid issue, for example, we had kind of thought at first that we would just need people to talk about, uh, you know, their struggles more. We realized people don't really want to talk about their struggles, but so it became, you know, farmers help farmers. When somebody's got uh, a harvest coming in and, and they're sick or something, people come out and help them. So we need to use the same the same resources here to really help people uh, look to their neighbor and try and see what they can do to help them. And we all deal with stress in different ways. Uh, that doesn't make one way right or wrong, but uh, the fact you just have to you do have to deal with it and and. Uh, Oftentimes that might just mean talking with someone, and sh- sharing with someone, and uh, that may be the biggest step right there. That's absolutely true. Um, on our, we uh, put together a, uh, a web page that has resources for uh, uh, stress and mental health, and it's fb.org slash rural resilience. The reason that the term rural resilience because we know farmers are strong and and, uh, and and we think it's positive. We think, you know, all these things that we're doing to help address it is positive. Um, but one of the things that we have on there is five steps to help someone at risk. And it's from the National Institute of Mental Health. And I think it's so important It's hard, uh, say, for a farmer to uh, seek help. 
but it's also hard for those around them sometimes to offer help because you don't want to you don't want to be pushy you don't want to cross any lines uh so it's kind of uh it's it's a challenge to show support without being real pushy at the same time and and uh, feel like you're crossing some kind of lines or boundaries. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think, and again, just being there for somebody. If you got to you know, if it's, a, if it's a particularly a family member or a really close friend, I mean, they will most likely open up to you. But if they don't, you know, we're all we don't we don't know what to say. And sometimes just saying to somebody, you know, I don't, I don't really know what to say, so, but I want to, I want to help you. Maybe that's sometimes the best thing you can do. And just watch for uh, behavior that's different than normal, right? Uh, if they're more withdrawn or more quiet than usual, or just acting differently, that might be a sign. Absolutely, and on the on the the website I mentioned, fb.org/slash/ruralresilience, we have uh, warning signs of stress, and they're very specific to farmers. It's from uh, New York FarmNet, and it's things like changes in routines, uh, people stop attending regular meetings or religious activities, or drop out of groups, or don't show up at the coffee shop, um, decline in the care of domestic animals, increase of illness, which is not really something you think about when people have more colds and flus or other chronic conditions. You know, a lot of this is uh, tied to sleep. I mean, uh, stress leads to loss of sleep, which leads to a lot of other things like illnesses and uh, another one's increase in farm accidents, um, decline in appearance of the farmstead, signs of stress in children, um, and decreased interest, maybe being less willing to commit to future activities or sign up for gatherings or show interest in community events. So those are things that, you know, I encourage everybody to, to look at that at that list, um, fb.org slash rural resilience, and really think about it. Are we seeing signs of those things in, in our friends or, or even in ourselves, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. We all, we need to kind of look at ourselves as well as watch others around us and, and, and take care of each other. Again, uh, those, uh, Give us those websites and those places for resource material, Ray. Yes, it's fb.org slash resilience. And that's where you'll find, uh, we have uh, links to the, or the, the list of the warning signs of stress, the five signs to help someone at risk. There's a link and numbers for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. There's also links to our research 
that we did with Morning Consult in April on Farmer Mental Health, um, and some other, there's also a link there to the information about our training program, which we're offering this um, January at our annual convention to our, our State Farm Bureau. Very good. Ray, thank you very much for the information. We appreciate it. Good to talk with you, Mike. Take care. Ray Atkinson with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Some measure success by Italian seats, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres? That's smart. With Credenz soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credenz variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Over the years, I have often uh, talked with author Ace Collins about one of the books he's written about our favorite Christmas songs. It, it's It's been one of the most popular uh, interviews I've done each year. I get a lot of comments uh, from listeners about how much they enjoy hearing from Ace and uh, about the stories of our favorite Christmas songs, and he joins us now. Ace has uh, authored several books, but uh, the one about stories behind our favorite Christmas songs is a particular favorite of mine. And Ace, uh, thank you for joining me and our audience. And uh, I'm, I'm, it's always a, a pleasure to talk with you, especially at this time of year. Thanks for being with us. It is a joy to be with y'all. I, um, you know, you mentioned that. I, I uh, on the favorite Christmas book, this, this was a book that got rejected 27 times over 10 years before it found a home. So, uh, and now it's sold over a million copies. So, I mean, it, it is a bizarre thing to think that so many people rejected it for so long and it, then it became so popular after it came out. And it's led to me actually writing ten more books, three novels and and eight non seven non fiction books about Christmas. And so of the ninety six books I've written and uh and have had published, over ten percent of them are about this holiday. And I can't think of a better thing to be remembered for than the guy who spent a lot of his time researching and writing about Christmas. Well, music is such a big part of the season, and, and, and some of these songs uh, uh, go back 
you know, centuries and have such fascinating stories about their origins. Um, when and we talk about this often, Ace. The, one of the amazing things about Christmas time is it's timeless because all of a sudden Bing Crosby and Perry Como they're back on the radio they're not at any other time but now they're back on the radio you know I've mentioned this in the past it, it, it is amazing to think of somebody that has been forgotten like Dinah Shore who is before our time but Dinah Shore charted over 400 times but she never had a Christmas record and so she's forgotten uh, people like Judy Garland who only only charted about 15, 20 times in their entire life have had yourself a merry little Christmas and we hear her each and every year Perry Como is probably another example of somebody who, was, who would have been forgotten but you can't imagine Christmas without, there's no Christmas like a home Christmas and, and the other many, many Christmas offerings that Perry gave us. So you're, you're right, it is a time machine that comes back and visits us. And if, you, if you're like me and you, you look at a specific ornament or a specific color light, my grandmother only had blue lights on her tree. And so every time I, I see uh, a blue light on a Christmas tree, I remember my grandmother, and I'm taken back in time, and I'm at that moment, and I can smell the smells coming from her kitchen as she cooks. I can see her tree. I can hear her voice. Therefore, unlike any time of the year, Christmas is uh, something that erases the years and makes us all young again and renews relationships with people who have gone on and puts them into really sharp focus and I think the music probably does that more than anything else um, you, know, you mentioned Christmas music that comes back you mentioned Bing Crosby Bing Crosby's Christmas hit the first one in 36 with Oh Come All You Faithful, this recording of After Charity, and I came up to introducing White Christmas on Christmas Eve 1941 on his radio show. It became the number one song of 1942. 1943, he introduced a song written by three songwriters about missing a girl when they were college students
two songwriters wrote Silver Bells for Bob Hope, maybe the Lemon Drop Kid in the 50s. And uh, Hope was so thrilled to finally have his shot at a Christmas hit, and he put off recording it. And when Bing heard it, he recorded it, and Bing got Bob's hit on, on Silver Bells. And by the way, the original name of Silver Bells was Tinkle Bell, and the wife of the songwriters, the wives of the songwriters, suggested they change it to Sing Silver Bells that had a better ring to it. Um, but you know, those classic songs, there's just wonderful stories behind each one of them. And there's also wonderful memories for all of us that go when we hear those songs as well. Yeah, my family's used to hearing me say every year, uh, you know, Bing Crosby. It's not officially a Christmas song unless Bing Crosby sings it. That's just, they've gotten used to me saying that because I associate him and his voice with the season so, so closely. Now, many of these songs, as I said earlier, that we still sing today, their origins go back centuries, right? I mean, uh, and, uh, who would have thought they would still be as popular today and so tr so much of our tradition as they are still today. Yeah, you, you always question why this one song has that ability to stay and linger and last forever and others disappear very, very quickly. And I think it's really only one or two songs a generation that take root and, and grow on us. If you look back through the generations, you'll find one or two, uh, Winter Wonderland in the 30s and, uh, is a classic example of one that was born that probably shouldn't have been a hit, but is and still comes back each and every Christmas. Uh, another song from the 30s that was popular that has remained, uh, popular in, in um, you better watch out, you better not shout, uh, cry, Santa Claus is coming to town. You know, that song right there was written for Thanksgiving Day Parade, right? and, and it became this monster hit, uh, after being played on national radio on that time. But you also go back to most of us, if we've been caroling, sing Gloria, because it's such an easy song to sing Gloria in itself with Dale. And when we listen to that song, it's a French carol is what it's listed as, because that was the first place it was published. But the song goes back to at least 130 A.D., or parts of that song did, because there was a church leader who declared that any time the second chapter of Luke is read, the congregation shall sing Gloria. And so part of that song is 1900 years old or more. And when we're singing it, we're singing a song that has tracked through a time not just covering the time of Christ's birth to right now, 
But also, when that decree in 130 was sent out, we weren't celebrating Christmas. Uh, Christmas wasn't a designated holiday for the church until until 200 years after that. So this is a psalm that even predates the Christmas holidays and the Christmas worship services. So it is amazing how long songs change and stay around, excuse me. And another one that has been around for a thousand years is O Come and Come Emmanuel, written by some unknown monk. But you can hear, when you sing that song, you can imagine monks in an old cathedral, you know, eight or ten of them singing that song and what it must have been like in, say, 1100 to have heard that echo off church wall. I think most singers realize the, the, the staying power of a popular Christmas song and long to have that signature Christmas song, that Christmas hit. Uh, in recent times, maybe the one that has really stood out uh, and looks to be one that will be a traditional hit for years and years and years to come is Mary Did You Know? Yeah, written by Mark Lowry. Uh, he was in Houston, Texas at the time, working on a cantata. His job was to, the music had been selected, his job was actually to write the filler uh, narration between musical songs as his church was performing as a musical Christmas tree. Um, and... Uh, Lowry got to thinking as he was writing that what it would have been like to have interviewed Mary about her son. And he imagined himself as a news reporter doing that and began to write down his thoughts. And he wrote down those thoughts into a poem and spent two years looking for a songwriter who could set it to music. Eventually found one right next door to him, really, because he was singing with Gaither Quartet. So he, one of Gaither's music, musicians, a harmonica player, looked at it and said, yeah, I can, I, I'm going to try that, and, and wrote the music to Mary Did You Know. It happened into the hands of Kathy Matea and became a huge country music hit. Um, and I think is this is the generation of the 80s and 90s, that is the one song that is probably going to be sung 150 years from now as well. Um, and I think the reason is it's a different point of view. We have never thought about Christmas from Mary's point of view before, uh, musically anyway. And I think that makes it unique. I also think that Skip Ewing, who wrote a song not long after that from Joseph's point of view, and it's a song called uh, It Wasn't His Child. I think it is one of the most powerful Christmas songs ever written. It's starting to be recorded more, and I'm not, I, it wouldn't surprise me 20 years from now to have that song as well known as Mary Did You Know. And they both are new and, and are, are 
write songs about it that had never been thought of before. Hey, you swear to go to a break. Gotta go to a break, but real, real quick though, Ace, there's something about that, that, that perfect connection between the singer and the songs. A lot of people covered those songs over and over, but one will kind of magically hit, it seems like. It does. I mean, you know, you can't imagine quite Christmas as you said, a Christmas without Dean Crosby singing White Christmas. Right. You can't imagine Christmas without Nat King Cole singing the Christmas song. And there was a debate on who was going to record that song first. And we can talk about that after your break. Yeah, let's take a break. We're talking with author Ace Collins, who uh, several years ago wrote this uh, fascinating book about the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. Uh, when we come back, we'll tell you uh, where you can find that book if you've not read it and get into some more of these stories. He's done some great research on this, and uh, I think oftentimes we're su- you'll be surprised at uh, how these songs that we still enjoy today and have enjoyed throughout our lives, how they got started, uh, how they were written, and and uh, the stories behind their recording and things like that. So stay with us. More from author Ace Collins here on AOA coming up. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credenced soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credenced soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized credenced retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. We are talking with author Ace Collins about the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. Ace, time will get away from us, so I want to just throw out some of the... uh, uh, songs that are such a big part of the season and, and let you give us a little background on them. Silent Night, one of our favorites. Uh, what can you tell us about that song? 201 years ago, young priest was organizing his first Christmas Eve Mass. He was excited about what he was going to do. He went to the church and the organ wouldn't work. He was panicked because he had built the entire service around music. He ran over to a friend's house and he was a school teacher and said, what do we do? The school teacher suggested that he play guitar for the service, but that wouldn't work with the music that had been picked out. Then the priest remembered a poem he'd written two years before while visiting an uncle. Together the priest and the school teacher put the poem to music 
and taught it to their choir. And that is the night that Silent Night saved a Christmas Eve service in Obendorf, Austria. It should have been forgotten there, but somebody had to fix the organ. And so, three or four weeks later, when the man who traveled all over Europe fixing organs stopped at this church, he heard the story of the Christmas Eve service, and he also learned the song. Thirty years later, that little priest, Joseph Moore, is walking through Cologne, Germany, and hears his song coming from a cathedral. And he wonders how they found out about it. They don't even sing it at his church anymore. Well, the organ repairman had become the Johnny Appleseed of Silent Night and taken it everywhere he worked. And within 30 years, it was the best-known Christmas carol in the world. And by the way, the name of the church where Silent Night was first performed and that priest had his first Christmas Eve service, St. Nicholas. Wow. That is, that is an amazing story, and every time I hear you tell it, I just, I, I'm more amazed by it. I, I love that story. Uh, Jingle Bells. What's the story behind Jingle Bells? Jingle Bells is the world's best-known Thanksgiving song. Uh, it was written for a children's Thanksgiving service in 1840 in Medford, Massachusetts by a preacher's son. It was so popular that they also brought the children's choir back to perform at the Christmas Eve service in that community in Medford. People who were visiting family from New York and Boston took the, that song back to New York and Boston and thought it was a Christmas song. And so here is this song that is a, it was inspired, by the way, about teenage with by teenage boys uh, drag racing their horse-drawn sleds to impress girls. It became and set in motion the perfect American Christmas with the snow, with the bells, with the horse-drawn sleigh. Courier and Ives jumped on it. Everything else, Christmas cards, sported these images. And thanks, and really, in truth, Jingle Bells is a Thanksgiving song and not a Christmas song. And I kind of think of it as an 1840 Beach Boys song because of the racing themes and the, and the teenagers trying to impress the girls. A lot of the songs that we still enjoy today came from around that uh, World War II era, right? Yes. Yeah, the three we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, White Christmas, uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas, and Have Yourself a Merry Christmas, Merry Little Christmas by Judy Garland, which we didn't mention earlier, but it, it, that's the, those are the trios that came from World War II that were so important. Uh, Judy's song in particular was written for the movie Meet Me in St. Louis. And uh, it had really down lyrics that fit with the script, and Judy wouldn't record it. Because of the down lyrics, they changed the lyrics to be uplifted. One line of that song was, 
two favorite singers, so I, 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 I like, I love them both. Hey, real quick, uh, before we let you go, how can people still find your book? Oh, they can find the book at any of the booksellers. The stories behind the best love song for Christmas, and there are more stories behind the best love song for Christmas, stories behind the great tradition for Christmas, stories behind the yeah. gifts of Christmas are all out there. They're all, all from HarperCollins, Sunderland. You can find them Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Christian Books, wherever books are sold, you'll find them. I encourage people to to uh, get a hold of those books and read them. They're fascinating, great reads. Ace, as always, thank you very much. Good to talk with you again. Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. It's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions.